Brought to you by the Mary Christie Institute, a thought leadership organization dedicated to the behavioral health and well-being of teens and young adults. We have a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, the executive director of the Mary Christie Institute. And I'm Dana Humphrey, the associate director of the Mary Christie Institute, and we're the hosts of the Quadcast. Welcome to the Quadcast. I'm Dana Humphrey. Our guest today is Dr. Gretchen Ely, a professor at the University of Tennessee Knoxville's College of Social Work, whose research has focused on access to reproductive health care. Dr. Ely, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And just to set the stage for our audience, our focus will be on the impact that the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade has had on colleges and specifically college students. But before we get too far down that road, could you just describe your research focus in your body of research? Sure. My research historically has focused on access to reproductive health care for vulnerable groups and populations. So it could be people living in Appalachia, for example, or rural residents. And I have also done several research projects examining data from abortion funds to look at some of the characteristics of their patients. You've highlighted some of these barriers to reproductive health care access. What are some of those barriers that your research has uncovered? Some of the barriers that we found were that people seeking to obtain abortion services that Our members of marginalized or vulnerable populations often have great difficulty coming up with the resources to pay for out-of-pocket costs. Even before the Dobbs decision, they often were facing travel distances that were excessive because most counties in the U.S. did not have an abortion provider. So unless somebody lived in a large uh, urban area with a provider, they often had to travel. And they had difficulty coming up with resources to cover things like travel expenses or childcare expenses. And they often had difficulty taking time off from work and things of that nature. Our research also found that folks living in rural areas often have difficulty even getting information about where to access abortion services and reproductive health care because the procedure is so stigmatized that it's often not something that people, you know, freely exchange information about. Yeah. And we can, I think, extrapolate and worry, at least, that some of these barriers are only going to get worse after the Dobbs decision. So let's switch our focus now to the impact of that. What are you seeing happen both at the local and national level? And just for our audience's knowledge, obviously, I already said that you work at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. So you're based in Tennessee. But what are some of the impacts that you're seeing at the local and national level? So one of the things that I have noticed that people are, in general, not college students necessarily, but that probably includes them, are, are are distressed and panicked, and they're not exactly sure, you know, how to plan for what could um, end up being an un- unintended pregnancy or something happening that's unexpected. So it seems like there's that energy in the air that people may be collecting various types of contraceptives so they can use those, 
you know, at a later time. So that's one thing I see happening is just a sense of perhaps panic or dread. Another thing that I've noticed is that the understanding of the existence of abortion funds and what they do seems to be increasing. People are realizing that they've been in the background funding people's costs to obtain abortions for many, many years, and it's just come to the surface that they exist. And I do believe the at the very beginning of the Dobbs decision, the donations to abortion funds ticked up. There was a big increase for those funds. And I believe also I have seen that people are indicating those donations are now leveling off and the funds are now faced with figuring out what they're going to do to keep supporting people while understanding that oftentimes now their patients will be coming from out of state or having to leave the state to go elsewhere. In Tennessee, they have banned abortion. We have to travel now. The closest place on my end of Tennessee, because I'm in the eastern region, is going to be going to North Carolina, likely a clinic in Asheville. In my actual city, because I'm located in Knoxville, our reproductive health clinic that did provide abortion services, it was there for 47 years. It has closed. It was located adjacent to the University of Tennessee campus. And so that means that college students who would have been accessing reproductive health care there, including abortion services, previously would have been able to walk to that center from campus, and now they will no longer be able to do that. Yeah. So we talked just a little bit about some of the impacts that we're already seeing and clinics closing. I think, you know, we've seen that across the country, not just in Tennessee, people, including students needing to travel farther. Are there looming impacts that we might not have even started to feel yet that could be coming down the road that experts such as yourself are concerned about? One of the things that I'm concerned about, especially with college age students, undergraduate populations are young, usually under 22, typically, is that they are going to be faced with unintended pregnancy and not exactly know where to turn. There is a lot of discussion right now from state to state about what the student health centers are going to be able to do. And so they may be not, college students might be living in a state where they're not even able to get information from their student health center. So I'm anticipating that people will be seeking information. They may or may not be able to get it. And then they're going to be self-managing their abortions if they can't figure out where to go out of state or how to get out of state. And of course, prior to Roe v. Wade, that was more dangerous. But now we do have medication where people can self-manage abortions safely. And there is research suggesting that even ordering abortion medication off the internet can be done safely, but it's still, of course, preferred that patients do self-manage abortion in the context of some kind of medical support system. And so people will not have those support systems. I, th- I think we're also grappling with whether or not people are going to be criminalized for leaving various states to seek abortion care. And so experience and research both suggest that when people are fearful and they're worried about criminalization, they may not reach out for assistance when there is a medical concern. So I think as both a researcher in this area and also a person who was a social worker before an academic, I'm concerned about the physical and mental health impacts that are coming down the road that we don't even know you know, yet because it's so early in the process of having the Dobbs decision and and not being able to access 
abortion in every state now. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting to hear you say that there's sort of the direct impact of some of these stringent laws that have come in the wake of the Dobbs decision. And then there's also this fear and panic that could be a barrier to access in itself, fear about consequences of reaching out for help. So I wonder if you could just speak briefly to concerns of subpopulation groups who have historically faced steeper barriers to reproductive health care access. Could you just speak a little bit to the concerns about those groups? Sure. One of the groups that's impacted that that I already did mention would be rural residents or people living in Appalachia in particular, where there just aren't a lot, if any, service providers. And so people already were having to travel outside their counties and and oftentimes outside their region to access care. And now, if they're not, if they live in rural areas or in a mountainous region, and it's already been difficult to get to care, you know, if they have to travel across multiple states, you're putting together a picture where people won't be able to travel out of state to get care because it's just going to be unrealistic for them to be able to overcome all those barriers. So that's one population of concern. And then another population of concern, when I did, I worked on three research projects with three separate abortion funds, just examining the characteristics of their patients and the barriers that they faced, as I mentioned at the beginning. And one of the things that we found was that the majority of patients served by abortion funds were women of color. And so as typically happens with social and public health issues, the burden of this disproportionately falls on women of color. So they're more often low income. They already often have distrust of the public health system and may also have difficulty accessing contraceptive services where they live. And all of these things come together to create a situation where they may be more likely to have an unintended pregnancy and then more likely to need abortion services, which now are no longer available to them. And so I think we can safely say that people who already were having difficulty are going to have the most problem accessing services, and this is just going to compound their difficulty. And to the extent where many of them will just be backed into a corner and and feel like their only option is to continue a pregnancy that they don't wish to continue. When we talk about concerns for the general population and subpopulation groups, our focus, as you know, is on college students. And in many ways, that's a microcosm of what is going on nationally, especially when you think about community college students and students at state universities. I know you have talked about how many college students, especially low-income students, go to college in the state that they live in. So could we just talk quickly about concerns about for college students, which I know you've touched on a bit, and then specifically concerns about their mental well-being in the new reality that we live in? Yes. One of the things that I noticed in the national conversation was that perhaps people would now be choosing colleges in states where they could get access to reproductive health care. So maybe students would stop going to college in Texas, for example, because they didn't want to go somewhere where they would be at risk. And I do think that is an important thing to consider. But one of the things you and I talked about was those would be elite college students that do have a choice about where they go to school, and they're probably highly sought after by multiple schools, and they would be able to go outside of their state to a college where they may have better access to reproductive health care. But the majority of students 
college students in the United States attend college within their state due to things like affordability and, uh, you know, access to that. I mean, you know, state universities are in, in and of themselves a public service to the people of their states. And then most students, a lot of students also attend community college in their state. So they're not even at what we might think of as large, you know, public universities, but they're often getting their education at community colleges. So oftentimes when your students in state, especially at community colleges, may be lower income or first generation students, and they are going to be seeking primarily their health care from the college, um, you know, health services. And so if you have abortion being illegal in the state and the state has influence in what can and can't be discussed within the college health centers, you're going to see people not being able to get the information that they need and the access to resources they need. You're also going to be seeing people that might be going into the student health centers with various pregnancy complications, including perhaps needing to help manage a self-managed abortion that perhaps didn't go the way that it needs to go or that they just need help in some way, or they're just scared and concerned. They really don't know what What's going on? But again, as we talked about before, they're doing this outside of a a medical supervised setting. And so they could be, you know, just coming in because they're in distress. Whatever it is that they're doing, they're going to be going to these college health centers and not always able to get the support and the resources that they need to do whatever it is that that they're there to do. And I think it's important to remember that that can also vary not just from state to state, but from provider to provider within the health center. And so you're looking at limited access to health care that's primarily delivered by the student health center, and they may not have the ability to give people the care that they need, and they may not have the desire to give people the care that they need, and they may not be aware that these issues are something that they should be anticipating or concerned about. You know, in California, people can get medication to do um, medical abortion in the student health center, but I know for sure they can't do that here in Tennessee. So there's going to be a big variance between the states. And then some providers within any health center could possibly refuse to provide information or assist people just based on their own worldview. So that's a concern too. And then your the other part of your question was just about the mental health impacts of this. I, I believe that in addition to my research and my experience as a social worker, I've also been a faculty person for 20 years. And I have had many conversations with students about wanting to confide in, in me about the need to address an unattended pregnancy. I think when they know that you study this, they tend to trust you in this area. And so people are scared. They're going to be worried about criminalization. They may not reach out to trusted faculty members or people in the counseling center or the student health services because of this concern. And it's just putting in a new layer of risk that I don't think students were facing before because they may be too fearful to turn to someone or worried so much about the stigma that they don't know, that they'd just rather manage it on their own and not get any assistance. So one of the things I think would be prudent is to have a social worker or another mental health professional, not just in counseling centers, but within student health centers, so that they can be a resource for people who might be facing these situations, which you know, there's just a number of different medical and mental health outcomes that can't be anticipated. But at least if we had those people available in the actual health center, there might be an opportunity there to assist people. 
because I just think we're not exactly sure yet how detrimental this is going to be. And I'm not sure with everything that's going on in higher education in general, if higher education leadership is prepared to assist students or they realize what a concern that this likely is to many students. Yeah, thank you. That's a great segue because I do want to talk about solutions or potentially some solutions. Are there things like that strategy of putting social workers within the student health center that college administrators, health practitioners, mental health practitioners, faculty can do in the wake of the decision to support students at their schools? I think one of the most important things is to have a conversation about this and be honest that it exists and that it is likely impacting students at this moment and then start to have some kind of preparation around it in coordination with the leadership at the university or college, the people that run the student health center and the people that run the counseling center. Um, Because some sort of messaging really needs to be provided to students with the understanding that many universities have their hands tied by the state legislatures. And and I think, you know, I'm well aware of that and that most people in higher education realize that 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 occurs. But with other issues, we're able to come together and make a plan about how we're going to still provide assistance to students, even in the context of some of the implications that we may face politically due to the nature of state legislatures. We, We still have an obligation to students to make some kind of plan about this. So within the bounds of the limitations that the universities are facing, some planning needs to happen about maybe, like I said, putting the social worker in the student health center, providing that person with guidelines about what they can and can't say. If they're not allowed to do anything except provide perhaps a website or an 800 number, then that needs to be carefully considered as to where they would send people and just strategizing about some messaging about it on campus. I I had some students reach out to me about what are we going to do? I I typically work with PhD students. So what are we going to do as PhD students who are also instructors when other students ask us about this? How are we going to respond to this? And, And I think it's difficult to answer that question right now because I know this is bubbling in the background. I know that reproductive health in general is a concern for students, particularly undergraduate students. And yet, at least on my campus, I do not see a conversation happening about how we can be prepared for this in the context of the limitations that we also face. So it seems like the first step is the discussing the elephant in the room, which is this has happened, and now we need to figure out what sort of messaging we'll give out to the students, not just when they come to student health, but across the campus in a way similar maybe that we do when we're talking about sexual assault on campus. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for for diving into that. I want to give you a moment for any last comments that you have or or last things to share. I really appreciate you doing this story because I I want to draw attention to the rates of unintended pregnancy in the United States, the lack of understanding about sexual health that many students have when they, especially when they first arrive on campus as freshmen. And, you know, these are students in and of themselves in this age group that are often away from home or navigating adulthood for the first time. They are going to experience unintended pregnancy and they are going to need evidence-based responses to that and being prepared about how to respond to students prior to the crisis occurring, I think is really important. And I hope that 
people will understand the urgency of this need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for saying that. I couldn't agree more. It does seem that we are in in a crisis nationally and that we may have been a little unprepared as higher education as a field. So I hope that this, you know, moves the conversation forward and that we can continue to talk about these issues. Dr. Ely, it was so wonderful to have you here. I really learned a lot and it was such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the quadcast. Thank you so much for having me today. This has been The Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Institute. To learn more about our work, go to marychristieinstitute.org, where you can sign up for our other programs like the MC Feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening.